Good afternoon, and welcome to Spokane Public Radio's Northwest Arts Review, a half hour exploring the people, places, and events forming the rich arts tapestry we enjoy here in the inland Northwest and our wider Intermountain Northwest region. I'm Jim Tevenin, pleased to be your guide on this journey. Today, Chris Massini talks with Spokane author and Artists Trust Fellowship winner Sharma Shields. Dan Webster offers his take on The Little Things, a new HBO miniseries. And it's my pleasure to introduce artist Robin Milligan. Music today, honoring President's Day just past, is from a fine ensemble that sadly has passed from the regional scene, the Air National Guard Band of the Northwest. This is Northwest Arts Review. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm Chris Massini. My guest today is Spokane-based author Sharma Shields. She's the author of two novels, The Cassandra and The Sasquatch Hunter's Almanac, and a short story collection, Favorite Monster. Shields also runs a small press, Scablands Books, and is a contributing editor for the literary magazine Moss. This month, Shields was awarded an Artist Trust Fellowship, a merit-based grant of up to $10,000, given to practicing professional artists of exceptional talent and ability residing in Washington State. Sharma Shields joined me to talk about the award and what she's working on next. Congratulations. You uh, have been selected for an Artist Trust Fellowship. So um, for folks who aren't uh, familiar, what is Artist Trust and, and what does it mean to be one of their fellows this year? Artist Trust is a nonprofit organization um, and they really are dedicated to supporting artists uh, in our state. And what's been so cool is that um, I, I won one other Artist Trust grant at the very start of my career before I even had a book published. Um, in fact, it was to support. Uh, being able to fund sending out my short story collection uh, to try to get it published. And so I feel like this has been incredible to have the, their support from the very start of my career. And now as I'm more mid-career, um, to receive this fellowship is just a, a huge um, surprise and honor. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So you were awarded a 2009 GAP Award, which uh, those are smaller grant awards um, and like you said, that was before you had published it, any book. Um, so I'm curious, how was the process for applying for one of these awards different this time around, you know, than it was 10 years ago when you applied for the first one? Yeah, let's see. Um, I felt like applying for this fellowship was a bit more involved. There were essays that you have to write and, and they actually ended up postponing this award cycle we were supposed to hear um, back in March. But of course, with COVID and everything else going on, um, they postponed it until the, until the fall. So 
uh, it was it was a much more involved process, and it's it's really interesting to consider my entire body of work as I'm applying for a grant um, or a, an award this large. Um, before I I didn't have much of a body of work at all, so I kind of uh, was able to choose from a much slimmer volume what story I wanted to share with them and such. Um, but this time probably the hardest piece was not necessarily writing the essays, but selecting, you know, what examples of my fiction would maybe most stand out. Um, and that was uh, kind of, um, I had to play around with that quite a bit. I'm talking with Sharma Shields, Spokane-based author and recipient of a recent fellowship award from Artist Trust. You know, the GAP Awards tend to be for a specific project that you're going to do. And the Fellowship Award is more of a retrospective, like, tell us what you've done and we'll give you an unrestricted grant. So I know there's not a project necessarily tied to this specific thing, but is there something you're working on that you're hoping uh, these funds can help support? Yeah, right now I'm working on a a new novel. Um, It's called The Tower, and it's Fiction, of course, it's based on uh, Vladimir Nabokov's book I love called uh, Invitation to a Beheading. It's a very absurdist piece. Um, it's got kind of my usual typical weirdness and darkness in it, but it's also, um, I'm hoping, funny. Uh, I feel like after <laughs> my last book, I needed to write something maybe with a little more hilarity in it mm. <laughs> because my last book was such a deep dive into militancy and um, colonialism and misogyny and all of that. Um, And there's certainly going to be aspects of of those themes in this book, but um, it's going to be, it's going to be funnier. Um, The other item I have open on my desktop of my laptop uh, is an anthology I'm working on for Scablands Books, which is the tiny press I run. Um, and we're doing an evergreen uh, anthology, as it's called, which is dark tales and verses from the Northwest. Um, it's actually called Grim Tales and Verses from the Gloomy Northwest, and I'm really excited about all of the authors we have in that, um, and that's going to be an absolute blast to hopefully publish at the end of this year. The other thing to note is that you're the only artist from Eastern Washington receiving an award this time around. And, you know, that's frequently the case and often a criticism of these big statewide um, artist grants and other types of funding for artists is that they tend to be very West Side heavy, um, which this one was with the exception of you. So what does it mean to be sort of the representative of the East Side of the Cascades in this round of Artist Trust Fellows? Oh, wow. Well, um, I think, firstly, I'd want to thank uh, the effort of some of our local artists here in uh, petitioning Artist Trust and saying, hey, let's pay attention to some of our Inland Northwest uh, artists here. Um, I'm sure, you know, that that had a great influence. And um, but I but I also am just feeling really grateful because there is just enormous diversity in the fellows that were chosen this year, not just in the regions they're from, which are somewhat scattered. They're not all directly in the Seattle area. Sure, they're not all King Um, County folks. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's also, you know, just a great range of backgrounds and uh, the type of art that they do 
Um, and I feel like it does show this amazing vibrancy in our state in the arts. Um, so I, I just feel so humbled and grateful to be one of the people there. Um, and I'm really hoping, um, I, you know, I feel both uh, really excited and energized um, at getting this fellowship and also a little scared. I want to, I want to, um, prove that I deserve this and I want to work really hard on, on my writing that I'm, that I'm doing right now and just, um, you know, really represent the region and do it in this very heartfelt and intelligent way. And I'm so glad I moved back to the Inland Northwest. I'm so glad I moved back to my hometown here in Spokane. My guest has been Sharma Shields. She's the author of three books of fiction, most recently the novel The Cassandra, and founder and managing editor of Scablands Books, a small press based here in Spokane. She was recently awarded an Artist Trust Fellowship for her work. Sharma, congratulations again, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. As The Little Things demonstrates, talent and skill don't always lead to a good screen performance, says Dan Webster in this review. It's not that often that three Oscar-winning actors face off in a film, yet that's exactly what happens in The Little Things, a police procedural written and directed by John Lee Hancock. Now streaming on HBO Max, The Little Things features two-time Oscar winner Denzel Washington, who matched up with Rami Malek and Jared Leto. And for the record, let's note the obvious. Washington, an eight-time Oscar nominee, was named Best Supporting Actor for 1989's Glory and Best Actor for 2001's Training Day. Malik was so riveting as Queen frontman Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody that he snared the 2019 Best Actor statuette, while Leto took his Best Supporting Actor award for 2013's Dallas Buyers Club. So much for past performances. The three now play off against one another in Hancock's story about the pursuit of a serial killer that is as much about recrimination and self-doubt as it is about any sort of attempt to seek a lasting sense of justice. Washington plays Joe Deke Deacon, once a hotshot Los Angeles police investigator who, for reasons that ultimately become clear, has been banished to some rural California sheriff's station. Tasked by his captain to return to his former precinct to pick up some evidence, he gets ensnared in an investigation that recalls the very events that led to his expulsion. That investigation involves the deaths of several young women, and it is headed up by the latest department wunderkim, Jim Baxter, played by Malik, who, after an awkward ego-measuring intro, invites Deacon to tag along while he checks out the latest crime scene. If nothing else, Baxter is man enough to recognize that he might be able to profit from Deacon's experience, might being the operative descriptor. Their target ends up being a creepy guy named Albert Sparma, played by Leto. I almost typed naturally played by Leto because, as he has in the past, not just in his Oscar-winning turn, but also in his depiction of the Joker in 2016's The Suicide Squad, Leto has a Joaquin Phoenix-like tendency to disappear into his roles. Method acting tends to require that kind of devotion. Sparma is the kind of character so popular in serial killer studies, from Seven to Silence of the Lambs, weird, charismatic, and seemingly so skilled at what he does that it's nigh impossible for investigators to get a handle on him, at least within the boundaries of legal police protocol. 
which of course is the crux of what fuels the relationship between Deacon and Baxter. What with Deacon, haunted by his own past failures, ready and willing to do anything to get his man, pushing Baxter toward making the same kinds of misdeeds, all in the name of, well, there's that term again, justice. As in any study of legal shortcuts, we all know that some sort of reckoning is coming. The conceit that writer-director Hancock uses to bind all this is a 1990s setting, one that requires cops to use phone booths and the checking of paper records instead of computer searches. And it only partially works, his film feeling more unstuck in time than anything else, especially given the fact that such songs as Mary Wells' My Guy and Peggy March's I Will Follow Him are both anachronistic and too obvious references to what we see unfolding on screen. Washington, as you would expect, puts in his usual fine performance. Unlike his showy acting in Training Day, here his deacon is more like the characters he has portrayed in such recent films as The Book of Eli and The Equalizer, driven but tormented by his past. Leto is effective, hidden under his zombie-like demeanor and fake gut, though his ability to outwit his pursuers is a bit too hard to believe. The biggest problem for me, though, other than the film's ultimate ambiguous message about the nature of right and wrong, is Malik. So good in the role that bought him his first fame, the USA Network series Mr. Robot, Malik was equally remarkable as Mercury. But the very qualities that make him special detract from his attempts, at least in the little things, to portray an otherwise normal character. For much of the film, Malik's Baxter seems like some sort of extraterrestrial being, not someone who in any way would be entrusted with a high-profile murder investigation. All of which just goes to show you, not every actor, regardless of inherent talent, can pull off every role. The best of actors, from Marlon Brando and Laurence Olivier to Betty Davis and even Merle Streep, have proven that. John Lee Hancock might have realized it too, had he paid just slightly more attention to the advice that Deacon preaches to Baxter. It's the little things that are important, Jimmy. It's the little things that get you caught. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm Dan Webster. Movies 101 host Dan Webster writes about movies and more for Spokane7.com. Movies 101 airs Friday evenings at 6.30 on KPBX and podcasts from our website, spokanepublicradio.org where you can find, as well, podcasts of Northwest Arts Review. From its formation in the 1940s through deactivation in 2013, the 560th Air Force Band, known as the Band of the Northwest and based out of Spokane, was a much-loved musical presence in the Inland Northwest. While under the auspices of the Air National Guard, the band released a recording called An American Scene. Here's a selection from that album, Claire Grundemann's Little March.
First Lieutenant James Phillips led the Air National Guard of the Northwest in Claire Grundman's Little March. Robin Milligan is an artist with a diverse academic background, including philosophy, history, and fine arts. Previously a gallery owner, she now curates local art for several venues and teaches as well. As artist, Robin works in ceramic, glass, and plaster, but is best known for her abstract acrylic paintings. Let's meet Robin Milligan. I've always been interested in art. Um, I had been drawing and painting on my own my entire life, but my parents always told me that art wasn't a career option, so I never actually took an art class until college. I was a band geek. I majored in philosophy and art history, and there was a studio art requirement, and so I immersed myself in ceramics and advanced painting, and I felt like I really found my calling in ceramics. I felt like like those were my people. I feel at home with my hands in the mud and getting dirty, and I felt at home, like where I belonged in the world, mm-hmm. in art. But I have to ask, you were a band geek. What was your instrument? I played flute primarily. Oh, okay. Do you still do that at all? I do, yeah, I do. All right, excellent. I'm glad that that's still a, a part of your life. So you said that... Yeah, I took a bass guitar recently, too, actually. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Now, you said that early in your life you were drawing and painting, and that was just a constant as you were growing up. But as you said, you were discouraged from thinking about that in terms of a, a career for yourself. Was it your study in school when you took that college art course? Is that what was kind of a pivot point for you? I guess one of my teachers, Tom Aspen, actually at Eastern, he said that there's no such thing as a starving artist and that you'll always have work doing something if you're an artist. And that kind of got me thinking, you know, maybe I don't need to try to figure out what I'm going to do with my life, so to speak. I don't have to become a geologist or a biologist or something. I can maybe actually do art and make a career out of that. And so that was kind of inspiring to me. And uh, do you find that your major in, in philosophy, I'm just really curious as to whether that informs you as artist. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I love history and I love philosophy and I like to think about things in ways that maybe either haven't been thought about before or maybe I just haven't thought about them before and kind of mold them over. And I think sometimes art can give us an outlet for those things. Mm-hmm. Like I love history and like art is sometimes all that remains of a civilization. And so I'm inspired by that and ancient architecture Uh, Byzantium and the Baroque and the Renaissance, but I think my work is most directly inspired by abstract expressionists. Mm -hmm. The first time I saw a Jackson Pollock in person, it blew me away. (laughs) Like, they're so big and just so immersive, like, just, like, it takes you away. So all of my paintings begin as abstract expressions of emotion, the same sort of thing where blurs of color or splashes of paint are what I start with, and then I let the painting take me where it wants to go. So it's not always about anything conceptual. Like, a lot of my work is just whatever weird stuff is going on in my brain at the time. Mm -hmm. Now, do you find that as you are working on a piece, and it begins, as you say, with with blobs and swirls and, and what have you, does it inform you as far as pulling out more specific images yeah, I think definitely there's a there's a play going on like between me 
and what's going on on the canvas or on the board or whatever I'm working on because I work in lots of different media. But there's always this sort of play where I don't try to control it too much because I'm kind of a control freak. And so if I control it too much, it's going to go a certain way. And I may or may not like it, but I've found that if I let go and I just sort of let myself get lost in it, it comes out a lot more interesting. There's stuff there that's maybe uh, deep down in my psychological stuff that I have no idea about. And so people will tell me that they feel a certain way about a painting, and I may not have even necessarily, like, meant for it to feel that way, but then I understand it better, like, from other people's perspectives sometimes, because for me it's more of a meditation. I might not even really be uh, involved as far as, like, trying to make it look a certain way. I might just be thinking about a certain emotion, or maybe I'm listening to a certain song, Mm -hmm. or... I've been working on it for years, and it's just been, like, battling with the little details. (laughs) (laughs) There are certain images that are part of your work. Probably the most striking to me were the hot air balloons. Well, thank you. Uh, I just started doing those a couple years ago. uh Uh-huh. Now, have you ballooned or uh, just, like, the rest of us seen it? (laughs) Yeah, no, I I was— When I was a kid, I was fascinated by hot air balloons and trains, and, like, my dad would always point them out. And so they always fascinated me. But uh, my husband got us for our nine-year anniversary a hot air balloon ride, and we went over Liberty Lake. And then you sort of have to crash, and it was really exciting. (laughs) (laughs) And I really enjoyed it. And it just sort of, like, that experience simmered in my background for a long time. And then... Um, a couple of years ago, I was going through some really hard stuff, and the I, like the thought of just escaping the world and just mm. kind of floating away was like ever present on my mind, and so that's where the air balloons came in. Okay, any other images that you keep coming back to in your work? Well, there's often the image of like the female form, and that probably has a lot to do with my inner battles. Um, but there's also like sumptuous landscapes and curvaceous forms, and I think those are all sort of just like playing into this idea that the feminine and like what it means to be like a woman, what it means to be feminine, those sorts of ideas. I I come back to that a lot in my work, not even necessarily intentionally. You mentioned earlier that you love to get into the mud and to make uh, ceramic objects. And the images you sent to me are all of your acrylic paintings. Are there other media that you work in, and uh, which is your most often practiced medium? So I most often paint with acrylic. That's what I'm most known for these days, and it's really easy to find places that want to show paintings. It's a little bit more difficult to find places to show uh, ceramic sculpture, and so I don't do as much of that, but I do have a studio in my home, and so I do play around in the mud pretty often. And I'm a permaculture architect, and so I do an awful lot of garden design and playing in the mud anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it all informs itself. Like I build with adobe, which is another form of clay, and I do a lot of that sort of work. And so even though like I might be painting all the time and that's what people see of my work, like my passion, like I think I'm most passionate about clay because there's just so many variables. And like when you fire something, it may not even come out the way you expected it to come out at all, and you don't have a lot of control, and that's really fascinating to me. In ceramics, of course, and clay work, do you work in as you do in the paintings with abstract forms, or are these practical items, or do you mix them? I primarily sculpt. Um, I also use plaster, but so when I'm using clay, a lot of times I just start off with like a lump of clay in front of me, and I wedge it up, and I think about it, and I play with it, and I just kind of let it decide what it wants to be, and that's 
when you're stuck, when you just don't know what to do. That's the best way to kind of get out of that feeling of being stuck is just to start doing something, right? Mm-hmm. So I start off usually not having much of an idea of what I'm trying to do. But sometimes, like I do a lot of commission work. So sometimes it'll be like, well, this has to be this exact object in this exact size and shape and blah, blah. So in those cases, like I do have something in mind and I can throw on the wheel or whatever to get the exact thing that I want to make. But for me, my most favorite thing is to just like take a hunk of clay and start carving at it and not really have any direction of where I'm going. And therefore, there are no mistakes to be made, of course. And uh, (laughs) if things if things go badly, you just go back to square one and start all over again. That's (laughs) exactly. Yeah. And clay is super forgiving like that. If you just just slap some more clay on it or take some clay off of it. Mm -hmm. Start over. Are you showing in uh, local venues these days? Yeah. um, With COVID, my last show got canceled, but I do have a show coming up. Um, a solo show in November at Wiley's Downtown Bistro. Mm-hmm. And I have periodically shows. Right now, COVID's making it harder for anybody to have shows. And is teaching part of your mix as well? It is. Actually, I'm going to be starting to work with uh, Madco Labs, which is just starting up. It's going to be a really cool, a really cool collective. I don't have a lot of details I can share with you right now, but I'm going to be teaching painting and um, probably some other things too. I do also teach workshops and gardening and permaculture and painting and ceramics. And Sounds like you've got a wonderful mix going for you of, uh, of things that ultimately are, are related to one another, which is something I think that many people would be very envious of who are perhaps stuck in Thanks. some things they'd rather not be in. Is there... I'm really glad you said that. It's been one of the things that um, was kind of hard for me for a long time because I didn't want to just do one thing. I've never been satisfied doing just one thing. And so I was always told, especially in art school, you have to pick one medium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was, never, I was never good at that. So I did all of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. There we go. Is there something that you would see yourself doing in five or 10 years that is radically different than what's going on now? I'm headed on a path, right? And so I want to continue down this path that I'm already doing and teach more. And I really want to help people build Adobe houses and tree houses. And I want to teach more of those workshops and just get really fluent teaching those workshops. I have some land and like, I want to have people come up in camp and like just immerse themselves in the idea of like building with mud, which is of course, again, back to the ceramic thing. That's mm-hmm. where I found my passion for mud. That's what I see myself doing. Like five, 10 years from now, I hope to be further in that goal and just mm-hmm. be doing that more often and sharing with more people. Artist Colony. I like the sound of that. That's wonderful. (laughs) Robin Milligan, it's been a true delight to talk with you and to learn something about you and your art. And we hope that uh, uh, your endeavors right now are going to be going well and even better once we have a better handle on the, the COVID situation. And uh, yeah, it does kind of make things difficult. Thank you so much. You can find samples of Robin Milligan's art on her Facebook page. Thanks for listening to Northwest Arts Review. I'm Jim Tevenin. Help today came from Chris Massini. We're grateful as well for the contributions of Sharma Shields, Robin Milligan, and Dan Webster. 
Taking us out is the Air National Guard Band of the Northwest. Please do join us again next week for another Northwest Arts Review. Thank <laughs> you.